This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The Adventures of Sam Spade Detective was a radio series based loosely on the private detective character Sam Spade, created by writer Dashiell Hammett for the Maltese Falcon. Series starred Howard Duff as Sam Spade and Loreen Tuttle as his secretary, Effie, and took a considerably more tongue-in-cheek approach to the character than the novel or the movie. The series was largely overseen by producer-director William Spear, in 1947, scriptwriters Jason James and Bob Tolman received an Edgar Award for Best Radio Drama from the Mystery Writers of America. Before the series, Sam Spade had been played in radio adaptations of the Maltese Falcon by both Edward G. Robinson, meow, meow, you guys, meow, that guy, <laughs> also Humphrey Bogart in a 1941 Academy Award Theater production, both on CBS. Now, here's an interesting note. Dashiell Hammett's name was removed from the series in the late 1940s because he was being investigated for involvement with the Communist Party. Later, when Howard Duff's name appeared in the Red Channel's book, he was not invited to play the role when the series made the switch to NBC in 1950. So here's the episode, Sam Spade, entitled Missing Newsock. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Sam's Bay Detective Agency. Bernadine, anything wrong? You sound almost human. It's not Bernadine, Sam. It's me, Effie. F. But I'll tell Bernadine about your compliment. How are things? Well, uh, I've made out as best I could. I don't want to, don't want you to think that I begrudged you a vacation. After all, you have worked hard. You uh, did deserve it. Sam Spade, is that all you have to say to me? I'm not putting the blame on you. After all, it is a state law, so I can hardly accuse you of letting me down at a time when I needed you most. Well, you might at least ask me if I had a good time. I'm sorry if your conscience bothered you. Oh, well, it didn't. I had a divine time, and I met all sorts of interesting people, mostly men. You don't say. What else? Well, it was this desert ranch, you know, with a lot of uh, buttes around. You uh, mentioned those. No, Sam. No, no, no. They're the result of erosion. Those outdoor types, they go to pieces. Sam, are you pulling my leg? Not over the phone, Effie, but stay where you are. I'll be right down to look at your snapshots. And when you have the time, I'll dictate my report on the missing newshawk caper. <laughs> Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, 
and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Outside of Canab on Virgin River. Canab, the Pearl of the West. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And did I mention the buttes? Oh, well, they're very interesting. The uh, result of erosion. Yes. And it's authentic, too. Faye Hamlin's ranch. You uh, mean a working ranch? Yes. You see, that way you get into the spirit. Mm-hmm. My job was to feed the chickens. And that's how I met him. <sighs> One of the buttes? Oh, Sam, he's a very cultured gentleman. Culture smulcher. What's he do for a living? He, well, he cures stammering. You don't say. What's his name? Charlie Shank. Charlie Shank? He's the founder of the Shank Institute of Articulative Correction, which I should learn. Articulative Correction. Where is this institute? Oh, I have the address here. Um, General Delivery, Butte, Montana. Mm Mm-hmm. You're sure you didn't help him break parole, Effie? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. We just went on long walks together. Where to? Oh, different points of interest. Like, uh, like Wolf Canyon. Uh huh. He invited me on this camping ship, a trip, honorable, of course. Mm. But I couldn't go on account of my sunburn. Oh, oh. I had an awful, awful. Oh, I still got bad. it, you see. Mm. And then, then he went back to Butte. He had to leave in such a hurry, he couldn't even say goodbye. Well. It was a pity, too, because an old friend he hadn't seen in years came looking for him just a few minutes later. With a warrant? No, no, he was an attendant in a nearby hospital. Mental? Oh, yes, very intelligent. <coughs> he read me some of his poetry. Maybe you've heard it. Um, a loaf of bread. A jug of wine and thou. Uh, wait a minute. Isn't that the Rubiat of Omer Khayyam that was written by a guy named Fitzgerald? Well, of course. That's his pen name. Quite a penman. Yes, but he's paid his debt to society. And the other time it was a bad beef. Oh, He told me all about yeah, it. Sure. He cried on my shoulder afterwards. Sweetheart, when you make a mistake, it's a beaut. Sam, nothing happened. Well, I'm glad he cured you of stammering, anyhow. <clears throat> Ready? Oh, yeah. I've got a brand Work, new you notebook. Know. Life goes on. I've got a brand new notebook, Sam. I'll just turn over a new leaf. Not a bad idea, dear. <laughs> uh, date uh, July 18 to Mr. Alex M. Youngblood. Uh, mm, try that again. Mr. Alex M. Youngblood, P.O., Box 317, San Francisco, from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Dear Mr. Youngblood, I need a vacation myself. You need Charlie Shank. <sighs> sound tired, Sam. Fortunately, until I met you, my only experience with any of the men and women who make your newspaper run had been with one of your corner newsboys who shortchanged me two times within as many days. I have not read your rag since. But your name looked imposing, and so did the $300 check upon which you had written it. Per your instructions, promptly at 4 p.m. on the 15th inst., I much through the litter of your city room toward a door marked A.M. Youngblood, publisher, managing editor, and city editor. I wondered if you were ambitious, frugal, or three men. I did not know that you had good taste until I saw the trim, 20-ish, and toothsome secretary in your outer office. Hello. You're new here, aren't you? Uh, well, I'm not exactly here. I'm just here to see Mr. Youngblood. Oh. The name is Spade. Samuel Spade? Sam, except for my most intimate friends. <laughs> well, my advice to you, Sam, is to beat a hasty retreat. He's in a foul mood. Oh? 
Uh, why? Is he blind or older than he feels? I refer, of course, to your spectacular charm, Miss... Uh, if I may call you, Miss. Please, this is neither the time nor the place. My name is Phyllis Watson, and my phone number is in the directory, if you're really interested. I could be. Thank you. And if a man answers, tell him you're my French teacher. We. Oui. <laughs> you better go in now. If you're late to an appointment with him, you're through. Uh, do you have any more words of wisdom? No, but I hope you can do something to improve his state of mind. He's been awful lately. Good luck, Sam. Uh, thank you, Phyllis Watson. Come in, come in. Now, one minute past four. You must be Mr. Spade. That's right. You're almost late. Sit down, Spade. Cigar? Uh, no, thanks. Well, don't expect me to offer a drink. You aren't a drinker, I hope. You don't listen to the radio, do you? Well, you will not drink in this office. Nothing here but a cooler filled with water from a clean, gurgling, laughing mountain stream. You sound like a reformed drunk, Mr. Youngblood. What's that? Well, it was a good many years ago. If you don't mind, I'll just paste up the weather report for my morning edition before we talk. Oh, you do that too, huh? Yes, obviously. And with good reasons. I remind myself that I was once a copy boy, and I find it a splendid way to, uh, at least once each day, to lower myself to the level of the working man. There we are. Very hot in Phoenix, I say. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what do you want a detective for, Mr. Youngblood? I was coming to that, Mr. Spade. Sorry. Now, uh... <clears throat> Well, first, let me warn you that your assignment is a highly confidential one. They all are. In this case, a man's life may be at stake. Mm -hmm. The situation, my newspaper, at my order and under my guidance, has launched a campaign against crime, not aimed at the petty criminal, but at the easy-living leeches at the controls of the rackets, the hoods in bankers' clothing, the mansion-house parasites who direct the pickpockets, the second-story men, the housebreakers, who gamble away yeah, half a million uh, dollars a year easy. and uh, pay uh, income tax yeah, yeah, don't go to pieces. Of that amount. Uh, yes, I and, understand, I understand. Uh, you're after the boys on the safer side of the fences. Uh, uh, nicely put, Spade, yes. Thank you. Well, the long and short of it is this. The author of the expose series, Ray McCulley, my top crime reporter, has been missing for two days. I want you to find him. What makes you think he's still alive? Good heavens, Spade. Why must you suggest that he isn't? Because if I were a mansion-housed parasite in danger of being unhoused by a newshawk, I'd see said newshawk standing in a cement block on the bottom of the bay. I will accept that only when no stone has been left unturned. Every straw and every haystack has been searched. Every... Uh, nook and cranny? Uh... Yes. Sounds as though you need at least one police force, Mr. Youngblood. Now, why don't no, you just... No, uh... no, no, no. Impossible. You've already had a brush with the police over the expose. I'll not be dictated to at this stage of the game. I started this investigation, and I'll finish it alone. Well, it's a pretty big order, Mr. Youngblood, but uh, times are tough. I'll see what I can do. Good. I hereby turn over to you all the resources and power of this, my newspaper. When one of my reporters is in trouble or danger, sir, I will spend every penny of my fortune, if necessary, to deliver aid and succor to his side. You then gave me Ray McCulley's expose stories to date. I saw why you, his family and friends, and his creditors could have been worried about him. They were hot. One followed a stolen car from the time of the heist through the alteration of the body color, tire brands, license number, motor serial number to the time it was shoved onto a used car lot. They named names all the way through. And another did the same to the firm of Otter, Badger, and Mole, furriers, and alleged manufacturers of coats from clouted pelts. Ray McCulley 
had dropped out of sight right after that story had been published. So I left your office hoping that I'd reach the address of Otter, Badger, and Moe before closing time. I did. The plushy showroom was occupied by a dozen attractive fur-bearing models, female, but wax. The live models, male, were wearing padded shoulders, pointed shoes, and coats tailored for underarm artillery. They would have looked more natural at Madame Tassard's waxworks, Bertram the burglar section. Hey, oh, hey, what'll it be? Something for a little woman? Uh, where do I find Mr. Otter? You the law? Uh, Leo sent me. He's in his office. Come on. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't crowd me. You say you want to see the boss? On business. Stop nudging me with a rod. In there, hey, move. Okay, okay. Hey, uh, boss. Yes, Woody? Here's uh, Joe here to see you. Leo sent him. I'll nudge him in, Woody. No nudging, Woody. Well, well, well. So Leo's sending a man to see me. I wonder why. If you'll uh, comb this character here out of my hair, I'll try and tell you. Sit down, Woody. Thanks. You're new in town. Uh, yeah, that's why Leo sent me. A local muckraker named Ray McCulley interviewed you. He also interviewed Leo, but it didn't get printed yet. Uh, Leo wants to find him. So do I. How can I help? Well, uh, he walked out of here, went to his hotel, wrote the story, and mailed it in. That's the last anybody's seen of him. Uh, Leo was just sort of hoping that you'd already taken care of him. Not yet. That's all I wanted to know. Thanks. Just a moment. Yeah? Leo's sending you out alone? Why not? That's a tough boy, that McCulley. He's got plenty of protection. That's what you need. What kind of protection? Go along with him, Woody. Who, me? You're Woody, aren't you? Now, look, uh, look, Mr. Otter. I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, but the way I see it, this is a, a lone wolf-type caper. Hey, what's the matter, hey? You think I'm too good for you? Well, Woody, I wouldn't say that. Good, it's settled then. Take care of him, Woody, and don't mix it up with any of Leo's boys. If he's out to get that rat McCulley, he's our friend. <laughs> I was beginning to wonder who Leo was. I'd grabbed the name off a calendar on the wall, Leo's van and storage. I didn't know whether he was the Leo Mr. Otter didn't like, and I hoped I wouldn't find out. The best way I could think to keep from finding out was to shake Woody. On the way uptown, I walked him past four police stations. Crossing Market Street, I pushed him straight into the arms of a traffic cop who begged his pardon and let me off with a warning. At the Blue Bottle Bar and Grill, I gave Joe, the bartender, the Mickey Finn sign, but Woody liked it. He ordered another. Then he said he knew a place on Columbus where the drinks were even better. It was called Leo's Place. I wondered if that meant anything. Hey, oh, hey. Uh, who, me, huh? I want your drink. Don't you like this joint? Yeah, sure, it's fine. Uh, we're not getting anywhere, though. You really take your work serious. Me, when I go gun for somebody, I go where I'm least likely to succeed. You live longer. Yeah. Uh, Woody, what do you know about this guy, uh, McCulley? You hit a puss. He says he's a rat. Yeah, but he said he's got plenty of protection. Who's furnishing it? Well, you see, there's the... Boy, oh boy. Look at what just walk in. I looked. What I saw was not disappointing. She was wearing a skin-tight black satin with a plunging neckline and a new look only in places where it didn't matter. But she still looked enough like your secretary, Phyllis Watson, to be out of place in Leo's place. She didn't stay there long. She made a beeline through the kitchen to the rear exit. I made a beeline right after her. Woody was breathing down my neck as I started up the rickety outside stairway at the back of the building. I uh, stopped the landing and turned around to face him. See you later, Woody. I didn't wait to see if he made it all the way to the bottom of the stairs. I was more interested in what was going on at the top. 
A door had opened and Phyllis stepped inside. The man who let her in looked like Ray McCulley. Who are you? Well, the name is Spade. I don't know that name. Your boss hired me to find you. Private Dick. Yeah. Can I uh, talk to you for a minute? Sure. Put your hands behind your neck and walk up slow. Okay. All right. Go inside. Well, what's the matter? You're not acting glad to see me. This is the guy, fellas. Yes. Alex hired him this afternoon. There you see. Now, uh, what do you want me to tell Youngblood? You're not going to tell anybody anything. Oh. It caught me right behind the ear. The last thing I saw was that plunging neckline as Phyllis rushed forward. I didn't know whether she was rushing to my rescue or to get in a few licks of her own. Five seconds later, I didn't care. As the design of the linoleum slammed up at me, I had just time to wonder why, of all the people who were looking for Ray McCulley, I had to find him. Then I was out, boing, maced for my pains. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. to the missing Newshawk caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. I was lying on the floor in a room with nothing in it but a sink, an army cot, a square of dirty linoleum, and a body. I staggered to my feet, ran some cold water over my head, and took a closer look. It was Ray McCulley. He was a very dead, crusading reporter. He'd been stabbed clean through with a long-bladed kitchen knife. It set on the handle, property of Leo's place. I went through his pockets. and his wallet, a press card, a police card, union card, and ten genuine, crisp, new thousand-dollar bills. That gave me a line on the killer. He was crazy. So was I. I left it on him, too. Folded up in his vest pocket, I found two newspaper clippings, one from the Chronicle and one from your paper, both weather reports for the same date. It was very hot in Phoenix, according to both papers. But according to your weather report, the temperature in Needles, California, was 135 degrees. That needled me. So did the slip of paper I found on his shoe. The number nine and a date had been stamped on it with a rubber stamp. The date was the same as that of the weather reports. I turned it over. It said Ruthie's Booth, Manson Bowling Alley. You're the cigar type. Corona's a panatellus. Uh, thanks. I'm just shopping. Oh. Uh, I got a nice line of notions. So have I. Uh, no, I mean the dolls. The Hollywood dolls. You know, for the bed. Only a dollar plus tax. Very reasonable. Say, what's on your mind? Uh, Leo sent me. Oh. Are you going to collect the slips hereafter? Well, uh, not tonight. You see, I'm uh, sort of a troubleshooter. Leo's uh, checking up on some of the numbers that didn't come out right. Listen, I'll tell him to his face. I don't want any part of those wrong numbers. They're scary. Nuts. Who bought this one? Let me see. 
Oh, last Thursday. Oh, number nine. How can I forget? He put $500. And honest, if he's been around once, he's been around a hundred times to see if it paid off. Did it? What's his name? Mr. Spinelli. He buys a slip every day. And if you ask me, he's learned his system. Because he's been winning, you know. Dimes and then a dollar and then five dollars. And then when he come in with 500 on number nine until he dropped dead, did it win? Where does he learn? <gasps> it did. Wait, I'll look on the sheet. Hey, somebody else was in just this afternoon. Give me that address. Hurry up, will well, you? It's right around the corner on Manson, 810. Say, maybe that's his system. Eight and one. Don't that add up to nine? Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going in such a rush? Please, come back later. Tomorrow... Next week. Are you Mrs. Spinelli? Yes, please. I had so much trouble. Is your husband home? Oh, my poor man. They take him away. He's dead. Oh, I'm sorry. How did it happen? Who are you? I'm a detective. Maybe I can help you. May I come in? <laughs> All right. Come quite a while to gain her confidence, and after that it took still quite a while to piece together the grief-stricken grumble of words that poured out of her. When I got it down in the form of a statement, I asked her to read it over. Item. Statement by Mrs. Arturo Spinelli. All the time he played those numbers. I told him they're just a bunch of gangsters. They don't let you win. Then he met this man Macaulay, a writer for the newspaper. My husband says this man shows him how to win. He wins and wins. Then he goes to bank and takes out all our savings. I begged for him not to do it. But no, no, he was greedy. And this Macaulay poisoned his mind. Sure, he won. He brought the money home in his hand. Ten thousand dollars. I don't want it. I'm scared. I took it while he was sleeping with wine and gave it to the men. I tell him all I want is the 500. He tried to tell me we do good. We help catch the big gangsters. I say we don't want to do so good we get murdered in our beds. So he says, okay. But if I change mine, here is address. I don't change my mind. Because already my husband, he is dead. At home. Stand. No, I don't change my mind. She signed it, and I left her alone with her grief. I wasn't working for you anymore, Mr. Youngblood. You hired me to find your reporter, and I had. And I wished I hadn't. The rest of it I did for myself. You weren't in your office when I got there, but Phyllis was. I found her behind the city desk in the act of dropping tomorrow morning's weather report into the slot. I grabbed her out of her hand. What? Oh, it's you. Where's your boss? At home, I guess. We'll talk in his office. Come on. Sam, uh, I can explain how I have to be... You're going to explain plenty before I'm finished with you. Sit down. Oh, you... I don't have to be so rough. What's the matter with you? Plenty. I'm stupid. I was stupid to take this job, and I was stupid to play it cagey with you. I should have beaten the story out of you before the trouble started. It's a little late in the day now, but not too late to send you up for McCulley's murder. Oh, you're insane. 
Ray McCulley was... I'm the only one who ever tried to help you. And I'm the only one who can place you in that room, not ten minutes before the murder. I told you I can explain why... Stop trying to save your own skin. Spinelli was only one of a half million poor dumb yucks that lose their nickels and dimes and dollars every day in the policy racket. Only he had the bad luck to win. There won't be any more lucky dead people like him if I have to make a patsy out of you to stop it. It won't stop it. Nothing will. Ray talked big and brave like you. Now he's dead. Yeah, with 10,000 bucks dirty money in his wallet. I won't let you say things like that. Ray was an honest reporter, too honest. He thought Youngblood meant what he said about that cleanup campaign. Yeah, he did. He wanted to run this town by himself, clean up his competition. When Ray started collecting material on the numbers racket, he still thought Youngblood was on the level. But that was before he stumbled onto the thing about the weather reports. Yeah, yeah, that was a new one. The old Dutch Schultz mob used to add up the stock market quotations. If they cheated, they knew their customers weren't good enough at arithmetic to prove it. But who knows how hot it is in Phoenix unless they live there. I don't know what you're talking about. Listen, that's how the number game works, sweetheart. The suckers pick a number from one to ten, see? The operators tally up the slips, and the least popular for that day has to win. The weather report doesn't have to pass through the copy desk, and with young blood pasting it up with a few strategic corrections, it was easy to make their winners look as if they were on the level. Oh. But of course, you had no way of knowing that. You only watched them do it day after day. You know, I couldn't understand why he did those things. It, it seemed silly falsifying a weather report, but it didn't seem as if it could do any harm. What did you meet McCulley for? To get your cut of the ten grand Spinelli was killed for? How dare you? I went there to warn him about Who you. Who killed him? I don't know. You're lying. All right, I'm lying. But I can prove that Ray was on the level. I've got the proof right here. The whole story he wrote on the numbers racket, even naming Youngblood as the head of it, his own publisher. I went there to get it. I was going to take it to another newspaper. Why didn't you? I can't tell you that. You don't have to. Mrs. Spinelli was confused, grief crazed. She had to put the blame on somebody, and when she did, she got her revenge the only way she thought she could. She may have been right about that, but she killed the wrong man. Why didn't you tell me you knew who killed Ray? I wanted to give you a chance to tell me yourself. I'm glad you didn't. And that, Mr. Youngblood, is the crop. I'm sure you appreciate the fact that I gave the double scoop to your paper. Like uh, Mrs. Spinelli, I have my own ideas of vengeance. Besides, it may up your circulation a little, and you can certainly use a little extra money for your defense. Uh, by the way, who's Leo? Uh, period, end of report. But, Sam... Yes, Evie? I thought Mrs. Spinelli killed Ray McCulley. The vacation helped. You're absolutely correct. Mrs. Spinelli killed Mr. McCulley, if you'll pardon the expression. Well, why did she kill her husband? I was wrong. The vacation didn't help. You mean she didn't? She killed McCulley to avenge the murder of her husband. You mean Mr. McCulley killed Mr. Spinelli? Effie, stop. I'll go mad. Oh, you need a vacation, Sam. Look, type that up. The clatter of the keys may stimulate you to further cerebral activity. I beg your pardon, Sam? Brain work. Now, shoot. Oh, brain work. Oh, well, you know best. Well, here it is, Sam. And you were absolutely right. The typing cleared my mind. It's all clear now except for one thing. Well, let's clear that up right away. Why did Mrs. Spinelli kill her husband? She did not kill her husband. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant, why did Mr. McCulley kill Mr. Spinelli? Kelly did not kill Spinelli. Who's Kelly? McCulley. McCulley's real name was Kelly? Now, let's start all over again. Disregard everything we said up until now. Make your mind a complete blank. All right, Sam. In the first place, McCulley did not kill Spinelli. That's what I said. It was his wife, wasn't it? Now, wasn't it, Sam? Oh, stop teasing me. Sam, why do you look at me like that? Effie, Mr. Spinelli was killed by one of the policy racket hoods to get back the ten grand he won on the numbers game. Then how did the money get into Kelly's pocket? McCulley's. 
Why do you insist on using his alias, Sam? Effie, Effie, that was a tip of the song. I I mean, look, Mrs. Spinelli took it to him because she was afraid her husband might be killed for it. Then why didn't they take the money when they killed him? Because Mrs. Spinelli had already taken it. Then she did kill him. Go home, Effie. All right, Sam. I'm sorry I'm so irritable to you, but I, I thought it's... Well, it's been so long since oh, I've no, been here, you know, there, Sam. Angel, and I... Angel, you're just tired. Vacations have a habit of doing that to you. After a week or two in the office, you'll be all rested up again. I'll take it you easy. act as though you thought my mind were affected. Come here. Oh, Come Sam, here. now don't. My sunburn. Yeah. Oh, it hurts. <clears throat> it's nice to have you back. You look good, too. All tanned and healthy. You're... It's great. I think my nose is peeling. Well, don't pick at it. <laughs> good night. Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dowd, with musical direction by Lud Gluskin. Gil Dowd directed tonight's broadcast in William Spears' absence. Join us again next Sunday for another adventure with Sam Spade. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. This is Dick Joy reminding you to... Get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. You better get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. Start using it today. You'll find that you will have a tough time, Charlie. Keeping all the gals away. Are you baldy? Get Wild Root right away. Stay tuned for Abbott and Costello next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Bud Abbott and Lou Costello to get involved in another harebrained idea, like Costello getting a tattoo. Ouch. The Abbott and Costello program. Listen to the rhythm of Will Osborne and his orchestra. The great song styles of Connie Haynes and Bob Matthews. And that happy, heavy, hippie little horseman, who, when asked to pick the winner of the Kentucky Derby, glanced at his racing form and calmly said, Tell my 
mustn't say the song of remember when so just say that I'm a friend of yours that you happen to me Costello, I've been looking all over for you all week. I telephoned your house Tuesday night, and somebody answered and said you were taking a bath. You know I'm lost already? Right at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it. Somebody. <laughs> Look, never mind. This is no This is no kidding. Somebody deliberately told me that you were taking a bath. Somebody told said that I was taking a bath? Yeah, I called up Tuesday night. Tuesday night? Yes. Brother, did you have the wrong number? Uh, well, <laughs> well, look, my wife said she saw you in a tattoo parlor on Main Street this morning. What were you doing in a tattoo parlor? Oh, I got lost with my girlfriend, Tessie Tinfoil. Yes. You know, the one that's in the army? Yeah. So I had a picture tattooed on my back. You had Tessie's picture tattooed on your back? Oh, yeah. Sure. And I had me tattooed on my chest. Look. See it? Wait a minute, Costello. I don't see you on your chest. Am I back there with Tessie again? <laughs> Talk sense, Costello. I understand that Tessie is going to get out of the army next week. Oh, that's right, Abbott. And she's going back to her old job, posing for a designer. He uses Tessie's knees for models. He uses Tessie's knees for models? Uh, wh- what does he design? Doorknobs. Uh, uh, door... <laughs> Wait a minute. Costello. <laughs> Costello, just a minute. Turn around. Let me see that picture of Tessie on your back. Go ahead. Turn around. Aha! Uh-huh, I thought so. She's knock-kneed. Tessie is not knock-kneed. Well, her knees are uh, touching. She just stands that way because she hasn't got any garters. I, uh... <laughs> Look, Costello, if you... <laughs> Costello, if you're so crazy about Tessie, why don't you marry her? Well, I, I, I don't believe in marriage, Abbott. Marriage is like soup. Marriage is like soup? Sure, by the time you get through spooning, it cools off. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's ridiculous. Well, always, Abbott. You know, I, I, I don't know if Tessie wants to marry me or not. You see, she's also in love with nine other guys. Tessie is in love with you and nine other guys? Yeah. You should have been there the day Tessie left for the army. What do you mean? It was beautiful. The ten of us chipped in and bought her an engagement ring. Wait a minute. I understand you had a little spat with Tessie before she left. Well, what was it about? She got mad at me because I stole a kiss. Oh, now that's silly. Why should Tessie get mad because you stole a kiss? I stole it from her sister. I... <laughs> and you know something? That's the first girl I kissed since I le- since last Christmas. Oh, Costello, you mean that from last Christmas till now you kissed just one girl? How do you come for that? Oh, I guess I'm just a wolf. <laughs> I can see that. I'm a cat. I'm lower than a cat. I'm an old Studebaker. <laughs> with no fog lights. All right. Okay. Just cut that out, oh, Costello. The trouble with you is that you wear your heart on your sleeve. That's a lie. I might, I might have a little liver and onions on my vest and a smudge of tapioca on my trousers, but I ain't got no heart on my sleeve. No, no, Costello. I only meant that you are fickle. I'm what? You're fickle. Fickle. I never touched the stuff. I've never been fickled in 
in my life. <laughs> I'm not referring to drinking. I'm referring to love. Do you know what love is? Oh, sure. Little pigeons make love. Butterflies make love. Yes. Oysters make love. Yeah. Uh, wait a minute. Oysters make love. You'd be surprised what goes on inside them shells. No. <laughs> Costello, you don't appreciate romance. You know, you don't. Really, Lou. You don't, you don't appreciate romance at all. Oh, when I was courting my wife, there was a big grandfather's clock in the living room. And we used to sit and listen to it tick, and it said, take your time, take your time, take your time. Yeah, but things are different now, Abbott. Today, when a fellow sits in Apollo with his girl, there's an alarm clock on the mantle that says, get together, get together, get together, get together, get together. Ah, uh, I'll never forget that old grandfather's clock. <laughs> it's a great memory, though, Lou. That old grandfather's clock. The day we were married, it stopped. Stop? Yep. <laughs> your wife must have looked at it. I guess, ah, uh, yeah, wait a minute. Are you insinuating that my wife's face would stop a clock? Well, it ain't running, is it? it? <laughs> Look, forget about the clock, Costello. What happened to your romance with that tall, red-headed girl? Oh, you mean lean against her? Yes. Oh, well... <laughs> we're married and happy. Married and happy? Yeah, she's married and I'm happy. <laughs> I'm glad she married somebody else. The only reason you wanted to marry her was for her money. Well, marrying for money is better than getting married for no reason at all. Ah, <laughs> Costello. When I married my wife... Everyone said it was a perfect match. Match is right. She struck you and you went out like a light. <laughs> well, at least I'm not henpecked. Henpecked? Before you were married, you used to snore in your sleep. Now you cackle. No, no, no. <laughs> now, that's not true. Before I was married, everything was lovely. I, I'd sneak into the parlor and I'd catch her in my arms. Now you're sneaking into the bedroom and catch her in your pockets. I... <laughs> oh, forget about my marriage, Costello. I'd like to get you straightened out. Now, Tessie Tinfoil is not the girl for you. Tessie is uh, too uh, blasé. Too what? Blasé. Uh, Tessie's too blasé. Blase. She's got more than two blasés. Tessie's got a red blasé and a green blasé. <laughs> and she's got a yellow blasé. She wears them with her, ch her checkered shirté. Skirté. <laughs> under the coté of her suité. No, 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 There's no, too no. many no, things. No, 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 no. Hey, dummy. When I say she's blasé, I mean uh, Tessie's sophisticated. Sophisticated? That's right. How do you like that? And she promised to me that she'd stay on the wagon. Listen, you imbecile, <laughs> please. When I say a girl's blasé, I'm not referring to her clothes. Anyone who is blasé is sophisticated, and sophisticated has nothing to do with being inebriated. It merely means that a person has reached a degree of sophistication, where he or she becomes blasé. Oh, when you say a girl's blasé, you're not referring to her clothes. No. And anyone who is blasé is sophisticated. And sophisticated has nothing to do with being inebriated. It merely means that a person has reached a degree of sophistication, where he or she becomes blasé. Now you've got it. Now I... I don't even know what I'm talking about! Get him out of me! <laughs> Here's that romantic Bob Matthews. I don't care who knows it. I'm in love with you. Could ever change me, I'm 
my whole life through. That's how I am. And I don't care who knows it. I'm in love with you.
Hey, Costello. Hey, wouldn't this be a dandy day to go to the beach? Oh, yes. If we had a telephone call, we could call up some girls. If we had a nickel. And if we knew any girls. There you go again. Girls, girls, girls. Can't you think of anything better than girls? There's something better. Oh, look, Costello. Hey, there's Connie Haynes. Why don't you ask her if she'd like to go to the beach? Okay. Oh, Connie! Connie! Hey, Connie, how would you like to go to the beach with me, huh? Well, Mr. Costello, honey, I don't know if I should. I suppose you all want to teach me how to swim? Oh, nothing like that. <laughs> well, uh, you all won't try to hold my hand? Oh, you know me better than that, Connie. And you won't hug me or kiss me? Oh, gee, Willikers, no. I mean, after all, I... I, 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 <laughs> I promise I won't. Then what are we going for? Then what are we going for? We're going for something. Well, goodbye, Mr. Costello, honey. All right, honey. Well, Costello, he... That kid murders me. Ah, wait a minute. You certainly got turned down fast by Connie. Well, maybe she sure because I broke a date with her Saturday night. I was supposed to meet her at 7 o'clock. What happened? I waited around till 11. She didn't come, so I just stood her up. That's all. <laughs> I wish Connie would go to the beach with us because she's, she's got the cutest bathing suit. What's it like? Made of two pieces of string held together by a handkerchief. <laughs> well, it's too bad Connie's not going. Come on, get your trunks, Costello, and let's go to the beach. My trunks? Yes. Why should I take my trunks? I don't want to move. I just want to go swimming. <laughs> well, you swim in trunks, don't you? I do not. I swim in the water just like anybody else. <laughs> Never mind. I'll rent you a swimming suit. Uh, would you wear a uh, rented suit? That depends where it's rented. And the size of the rent. No, no, come on, Costello. Let's get started. I'll get some lotion to rub on you so you won't uh, sunburn. Oh, you don't have to worry about me, Abbott. I never burn. I just take a nice, healthy, even blister. Well, come on, Costello. There's nobody around, so get into your suit. Ah, uh, isn't the beach beautiful? Just look at the birds flying over the water. Oh, I wrote a poem about them birds. I'll recite it. Go ahead. A wonderful bird is the seagull, which can fly quite as high as an eagle. They sit on the sand, and sometimes they stand. But you can't tell a he from a she-goat. <laughs> hey, hey, Costello, here comes a cop. Hey, you guys, this is a private beach. You can't swim here. It's against the law. Well, why don't you tell me before I got undressed? Well, there's no law against undressing. <laughs> <laughs> Look, let's go. Look, let's go. Let's go over behind those ropes, Costello. That's the public beach. <laughs> Look at that beautiful redhead. I'm going with her and teach her to swim. Suppose she knows how to swim. Then I'll let her teach me. <laughs> hey, Eric, give me my pail and shovel. Right here is the spot where I covered Ruby Pool Cue up with the sand last Sunday. Well, what do you want your shovel for now? Well, I figure it's about time to dig her up. I love Costello. Hey, look at that fat lady in that rubber bathing suit. Oh, them rubber ba bathing <laughs> suits. They're made for fat ladies. They, they got a five-way stretch. Five-way stretch? Yeah, up and down, back and forth, and a shelf to take care of the surplus. I... <laughs> hey, Costello. Look at the man over there feeding donuts to his horse. Can you imagine that? Hey, you mister, what's the idea of giving all them donuts to your horse? I just want to see how many he'll eat before he asks for a cup of coffee. <laughs> hey, what are you doing on a beach with that horse? Well, you see, I came down here to go swim. To go swim. To go swim. Swimming? No, fishing. <laughs> Did you, uh, catch anything? No. You see, my wife was with me, and the fish took one look at her. When they saw how badly I was hooked, they wouldn't bite at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Never mind him, Costello. Why don't you go into the water? You 
You've always bragged to me that you were such a great lifesaver. I am a great lifesaver, Abbott, and I'll prove it to you. I can save anybody. Anybody at all. Anybody want to be saved? Anybody at all would like to be saved? Are you a man or a woman? Woman. How old? Fifty-seven. Anybody else want to be saved? <laughs> Never mind. The lifeguard got her. <laughs> Lucky for you. Now, now, look, Costello, when you go into the water, stay close to the life boy. Stay close to the what? Uh, the boy. Stay close to the boy. That's the safest thing. Stay close to the boy. That may be the safest thing, but if you want to have some fun, you've got to stay close to the girl. Costello, <laughs> girls have nothing to do with this kind of a boy. The kind of a boy I mean will keep you up. What do you know? What is the boy's name? Uh, the boy has no name. It's just a plain red and white boy. A red... Dummy, this boy is anchored to a sandbar, and it has a bell. What is that bell boy doing in a bar? Nothing. <laughs> the boy is not in the bar. The boy is on the bar. He probably crawled up there to steal some pretzels. No, no, no. <laughs> you imbecile. That boy is on the bar to keep people from going on the rocks. So he finally learned his lesson. Why didn't his mother keep him out of that bar? This boy hasn't got a mother. <laughs> hasn't got a mother? No. That did it! What do you mean? Abbott, you have gone too far. I didn't mind when you said that the girls will have nothing to do with this poor boy. And I was only mildly surprised when you told me that he was half red and half white. I said nothing when you pushed him up on top of the bar to steal pretzels when the bartender's back was turned. But when you tell me that that poor boy has no name and no mother, you have not only besmirched the sanctity of the American home, but you have cast aspersions on the good name of the campfire boys of Troop Number 35 USA... Lovely Connie Haynes on stage now with Will Osmond and the orchestra. Connie sings. Good, good, good. That's you, that's you. Nice, nice, nice. That's you, that's you. Fine, fine, fine. That's you, that's you. Good, good, good. That's you, that's you. Your tasty lips are sweeter than a lollipop. And every time I kiss you, ooh, I hit the stop. I rack my brain to find the proper adjective. A sentimental compliment to give you. Good, 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 that's you, that's you Nice, 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 that's you, that's you Fine, 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 that's you, that's you Good, 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 that's you, that's you Good, 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 that's you, that's you Sweet, 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 that's you, that's you Good, a good, a good, that's you, 
fellow, what are you doing with that horseshoe? I'm going to throw it over my left shoulder and make a wish. I wish that Hedy Lamar was the head of a giraffe and I was the body. Oh, now that sounds silly. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Why should you wish that Hedy Lamar was the head of a giraffe and you were the body? I always wanted a long neck with Hedy. Right. <laughs> now, Stella, you've got to get girls off your mind. Why don't you walk in the park at night and admire the stars? You mean like Betty Grable, Lana Turner, and Dorothy Lamar? No, 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 no. I'm talking about heavenly bodies. Brother, we're both talking about the same thing. Now, <laughs> look, someday you're going to get in trouble chasing girls, and you'd better keep away from that young divorcee that lives next door to you. You'll never get to first base with her. I did get to first base with her, Abbott. Wh- what happened? Her ex-husband was on second. Hey. <laughs> hey, dummy girls like her are a dime a dozen. Yeah, dime a dozen? Yeah. Well, here's a nickel. Get me sick. Yeah. <laughs> I think you've got women on the brain. Last night in your sleep, you kept hollering for Ingrid Bergman. Well, Ingrid Bergman happens to be my favorite actress. Since I saw her in that bathing beauty picture... You saw Ingrid Bergman in a bathing beauty picture? What was it called? For whom the bath towels. I have... <laughs> Costello, please. Do you dream of women every night? Not every night. Well, that's better. Sometimes I take a nap in the afternoon. (laughs) Come in. Oh, there you are, you fat, impudent little slob. That's me. (laughs) Yes, you. Costello, last night I dreamt that I went out with you. You did? Yes, and I've never been so insulted in my life. Take that. Now, the next time I dream about you, maybe you'll act like a gentleman. How do you like that? The next time she's dreamed, she's got a date with me. I ain't even going to show up. <laughs> well, Costello, I'm convinced that your dreams are the cause of all your girl trouble. And we've got to find out what they mean. Gee, I wish we could. Really, I do. I'm glad you said that, Costello, because we have with us tonight the world's greatest authority on dreams. Ah, good evening, gentlemen. I am the world's greatest dream analyst, Professor Melonhead. <clears throat> known, known professionally as Dreamboat Melonhead. Dreamboat Melonhead. Dreamboat. Looks like somebody plucked all the feathers out of your crow's nest. Hey, young man, are you trying to infer that my head is bald? Infer? If you put your head in fur, it would look like an oversized mothball. <laughs> hey, Anna, get a load of that slippery dome. I've seen ostriches sitting on better-looking things than that. No, Costello, please. And you get results. I know, I know. Please. <laughs> You shouldn't make you shouldn't make cracks about the professor's head. If his head ever cracks, I'll make an omelet out of it. <laughs> Look, gentlemen, we're wasting time. Uh, professor Melonhead, yeah? can you tell us what causes Costello to dream about girls? Of course, Abbott. Tell me, Costello, do you dream about girls all the time? No, only when I'm asleep. <laughs> Good. Now I'll have to have a little of your case history. Do any other members of your family have peculiar dreams? Yes, my uncle Artie Stevens. Mm-hmm. Last night he dreamed he was pulling the weeds out of his garden. Ah, he dreamed he was pulling weeds out of his garden. What happened? When he woke up, his wife was as bold as an eagle. (laughs) All right, now let's get back to you, Costello. What type of girls do you dream of? Beautiful girls. Beautiful. Once I dreamed of beautiful, gorgeous blonde, and when I put my arms around her, something electric passed between us. A shot? No, she slipped her light bill into my pocket. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Professor Melonhead, have you found out what causes Costello's dreams? Well, Abbott, my superficial diagnosis tells me that Costello's dreams are caused by contraction of the nerves in his head, making his brain too tense. My brain is too tense? Yep. Two tenths the size of a normal brain. <laughs> Millen head for two tenths, I'd suck you right in the push. All right. Now, Costello, I will attempt to remedy your condition by massaging your head. First, I will stuff cotton into your auditory canal. Then, I will pack your cranium in cracked ice, tighten your cerebrum, loosen your cerebellum, and then I will rub horse liniment into your medulla oblongata. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
wouldn't dare. <laughs> you haven't got the nerve. Oh, now, Costello, a person's equilibrium is often an important factor in the cause and effect of dreams. Therefore, I will have to test your equilibrium. Melonhead, if you as much as lay one finger on my equilibrium, I will call my mother. <laughs> no, no, no. To test your equilibrium, Costello, I want you to climb up this stepladder here and balance yourself on the top step. Go ahead. Well, it's very silly, but I'll go. Here I go. Ah, Costello is now climbing the ladder. He's up 15 feet. He's up 30 feet. He's climbing, Costello. Now he's up 75 feet. Costello has now climbed up to 100 feet. Now, uh, wait, 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 wait a minute, Professor. Minute. That stepladder is only nine feet tall. Oh, my goodness. What a mistake. Costello! Costello, come down here at once! Costello, do you realize you climbed up a hundred feet and that ladder is only nine feet high? Now he tells me. Oh, let me out of here. Let me at that melonhead, will you? Let me at melonhead. And now here, Bud Abbott, is Costello with the final word. No, Costello. I think I figured out a cure for your mania for chasing girls. I've asked Connie Haynes to give you a nice big kiss. Yeah, but that ought to cure me. Go ahead, Connie. Well, pack her up, Mr. Costello, and I'll kiss you. Mm. <laughs> How do you feel now, Mr. Costello, honey? I feel fine, but that sailor in the first row just fainted. Good night, folks. This is the Armed Forces Radio Service. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's the Cisco Kid, followed by our Miss Brooks. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.